0: There's a story told about uh, Morris and his wife, Esther, who every year went to the state fair, and every year Morris would say, I would really like to ride in that helicopter, and Esther, in return, would always say, I know Morris, but that helicopter ride is $50, and $50 is $50. So one year Morris says, you know, I'm 85, and if I don't ride in that helicopter, I might never get a chance. And Esther says, but Morris, the helicopter ride is $50, and is $50. The pilot passing by overhears the couple and says to them, you know, I'll make you two a deal. If you can stay quiet for the entire ride, I won't charge you. But if there's one word, it'll be $50. Morris and Esther agree, and up they went. The pirate did fancy maneuvers and not a word was heard. He did daredevil tricks and still not a word. And when they landed, the pilot turned to Morris and said, You know, I did everything I could to make you say something, but you didn't. I'm actually impressed. And Morris says to him, You know, I almost said something when Esther fell out of the helicopter. (laughs) But you know, $50 is $50. (laughs) It's not a nice joke. Not at all. Not nice. But then again, life isn't so nice. It is 1950 Nobel Prize winning speech. The writer William Faulkner once said that the only thing worth writing about is the human heart in conflict with itself, of what we are and what we want to be, of the life we have and the life that we wish and dream of having. How even as we breathe and move and live and love, that each of us feel on the inside, that there's another different version of our lives and within ourselves waiting to unfold, which is to say that some people believe that daydreaming is a distraction, but maybe the dreams we have while we're awake are telling us something about ourselves. The Harvard researcher Steven Pinker works primarily in the question of reality of the gaps between what actually is and the perception of what we actually feel things are, or maybe facts better said, what the world is and what we feel it is. Research shows us over and over again that people feel the world has never been worse off, but the truth is that for merely every imaginable criteria, the world that you and I live in is the best version of the world that has ever existed. By nearly every conceivable metric, we are better off than any human being has ever been in the history of humans ever walking on this earth. You can examine it by a simple exercise. Is it better to be healthy or sick? Is it better to be rich or poor? Is it better to be happy or sad? Is it better to live with freedoms and rights or without? By nearly every one of these criteria, the world of today is better than the world of yesterday. People are healthier than they have ever been. We live longer than any humans ever imagined that they might live. People are more free, more secure, more protected than any human has ever lived at any time in human history. The most crime-ridden neighborhood in North America is safer today than the wealthiest corner in London was after sunset even 150 years ago from a perspective of leisure and enjoyment, there are resources at the hands of the average person that was unattainable unattainable, even to the wealthiest person a hundred years ago. And if you took the average middle-income person today and transported them back to the middle ages, they enjoy a level of comfort and security and wealth that no one lived with. And if you made this all into a graph line, it would be rising decade after decade, generation after generation, proving that the condition of how humans live is progressing and improving all the time. So being healthier and wealthier and freedom from the point of scientific fact must also mean that you and I are happier. Researchers also know that from an ocean of information that tells that people are more depressed than in the past, that we suffer from anxiety in ways that our grandparents never did, that the cases of both attempted and actual deaths by suicide are higher than they were in the past. And if each of these points are true and real, that objectively the world that you and I live in has never been better, and subjectively we have never been unhappier, then this stands to be the great riddle of our time that our objective reality has persistently gotten better, but our experience of living has worsened. But I don't need to read Pinker or Harari or Kahneman or Pillemer to know this. In the 30 years of rabbinical life, I see it because you have shared your stories and lives and secrets with me. And of all the paradoxes of the modern world, that this is the ground zero of it all that in the Western world, happiness is seen tied to experiences, which is to say that we have, should we have lots of happy experiences, then we think our lives will be happy ones. These are the happiness myths, after all. Beliefs that certain experiences, marriage and jobs and wealth will make us forever happy. People say to me, you know, I'll be happy, Rabbi, when I make partner or pay off my mortgage, when I say I do, when I have a baby, when I'm rich. And it's not that you won't feel happy when these things happen to you. You will be happy, but you won't have happiness. You'll be happy, and then you'll stop being happy. You achieve your dreams, but then you feel empty afterwards. Experiences bring us to where we wanna be, but then they leave us wondering, what now? Because our predictive abilities are not what we think they are. And if you don't believe me, Pick up the autobiography of Buzz Aldrin. Aldrin was on Apollo 11, landed on the moon, walked its surface, and after landing back on Earth, he became chronically depressed, drug addled, bankrupt, a drunken shell of the man he had once been. But there is a different argument of how to become happy. On one hand, the Western world has tried over the past 80 years to increase your access to things and experiences, promising you that they'll make you happy. Companies don't just sell you things, they sell the appearance of an experience. That's why they have celebrities selling and endorsing shoes and shirts and watches, coffees and cars. After all, what grabs your attention more? A hot cup of alkaloids, phenolic acids, flavonoids and terpenoids, or George Clooney telling you to have a hot cup of that thing and slowing down and enjoying life like he does. Or perhaps a list like a cassia gum, oligosaccharides, glutamates, or Oprah's promise of the warming power of a bowl of oatmeal at your kitchen table. But it's possible that the problem that we suffer is not a lack of experience, but how we experience life. It's the argument of not what you experience, but how you experience. It's not the question of how was your day, but how did you face your day? Which in fact has been Judaism's argument for thousands of years. Not to be dependent on things to make you happy, not to lead us to believe that we in fact change from what we experience, but instead to give us the tools to face and endure and then manage what we experience which is to say that Judaism's argument about happiness that isn't a product of what you experience in life, but how you experience your life, which may very well explain our problem. It's an echo of what one of my personal heroes once reflected on, Dr. Viktor Frankl, when he wrote, how is it possible that the area in the Western world with the highest percentage of wealthy people, that being Beverly Hills, also has the highest per capita number of mental health professionals. We've been raised to believe that life is a series of promises and experiences that are meant to happen to us. I am supposed to be healthy. I am supposed to live a long life. I am supposed to be wealthy and smart and charming and happy. Let it be that our first lesson in life is this. Nothing is supposed to be. Nothing. Every year a pageantry takes place like it has for thousands of years, where we did the same thing and are supposed to be surprised by it. On the night of the 10th day of Tishrei, we stop eating and drinking. Jews shed their leather shoes and showers for prayers and sermons. We stand and beat our hearts with our fists. We read a list of things that we probably did wrong over the course of the year. And if we're careful and thoughtful, and we think about what went wrong, 25 hours later, the chauffeur is blown with us declaring, we're forgiven. All echoing the words of the German Jewish poet, Heine, who converted to Christianity in his 20s, and on his deathbed, he recanted it. God will forgive me, Heine said. After all, it's his job. And if that's God's job, then what's yours? The ancient rabbis say that when humans set out to do a job, we search to find the best tools possible. Think, for example, of wearing your best suit for a job interview. But the same, they say, isn't true for God. They say that God uses that God uses broken tools. God, God's job is to see the world is repaired And the broken tools that God uses is me and you. Our second lesson is this. We, these frail, broken tools, since we know that God will forgive us, after all, it's his job, we would do so much better to forgive ourselves. Because by forgiving ourselves, we find ourselves able to forgive others. And through forgiveness, we let go of hurt and disappointment and consider what we can do different to experience our lives differently. The first time I went to Israel, I was 15 years old. We did the usual things that everyone does, but given that the trip was sponsored by my orthodox high school, they did some unusual things. One of them was bringing us up north to an ancient mikveh, to a ritual bath inside of a cave. There we were told to immerse ourselves because this mikveh, it was believed to have a special power. Whoever went in it was assured to say the Shema before they died. I have stood personally over the deathbeds of more people than I care to count. And them unable to say the Shema for themselves, I have said it for them. The one thing that most Jews know is how central and important a prayer the Shema is. We all know the words, And we know to cover or close our eyes when we say it. But the prayer is just plain strange. Shema Yisrael, we say. Listen, people of Israel. Hearing the words, you realize that the Shema is not said to God. But to us. Which is when you think about it, it is so perfectly Jewish. Because in Judaism, we do not pray to change God not to make God do what we want when we want it. Our third lesson is that when we pray to look, we look to change ourselves. And let it be that this day be considered successful if you are not the same person you were before it started. If so, your prayers have been answered, my friends. You are changed. It seems to me that it is no coincidence at all that the better part of the Torah takes place in the desert. A inhospitable environment, or that the desert is chosen by God to instruct Israel in his laws because the world itself is often a desert. It is a place of unhappiness. The Almighty demonstrably does not choose to deliver the message and the Torah to the people of Israel in a state of ease because Judaism is meant to help us face life in its difficulty and its harshness. And even when the Israelites enter the land they will not find a perfect, blissful environment, but only more struggle and more difficulty. Their faith was meant to prepare them for it. And what was true for the ancient Israelites is no less true for us, because we know that life is harsh and difficult. It is filled with struggle and often absent of blitz, which brings us to this, to Yisker and one other lesson. There is a little known law that has never been observed in Jewish life, by the way, which you need to understand in order to comprehend the story. It says that a couple that has been childless for 10 years are supposed to separate. But those same ancient rabbis who told the story always saw two things at the same time. They saw law and they saw love. There was a couple they say, who were married and did not have children after 10 years, and they decided with this law in mind to part. The husband then turns to his wife and says, this evening when I go to bed, choose whatever good thing you want in the house, take it before you go to your father's home. After he fell asleep, she told her servants to carry him over to her father's house. The next morning he awakes and confused, he said, What am I doing in your father's house? And she says to him, there is nothing better in the world for me than you. The story speaks a truth. In fact, a great truth about our lives. It says that love deeply matters, perhaps more than anything else, even when it sears and burns even when life can devastate and shatter the ones that we love. A few years after the Second World War, a doctor was treating a Jewish woman who wore a bracelet made of baby teeth mounted in gold. That's a beautiful bracelet, he said. Yes, she answered. The tooth here belonged to Miriam, this one to Esther, this one to Shmuel. She mentioned the names of her daughters and sons according to their age. Nine children, she said, And all of them were taken out the gas chambers. And the doctor asked her, how can you live with such a bracelet? And quietly she responded, I am now in charge of an orphanage in Israel. Parent to child, brothers and sisters, husbands and wives, friends and community, us and God. A world without love would fail. Yusker teaches us, because our lives are brief, that love is worth every effort in life and in memory. On a cosmic scale, we are but the shortest of breaths, and yet we so deeply matter to those we love and those who love us. Where no matter how painful or how long the separation, our tears remind us of the beautiful they did and how grateful we are for being a part of it, it is to know that they are not lost to nothingness. It is to look at the night sky and not think the stars, who are so few in number, might be losing to the great darkness all around. Because once there was a time when the sky was only dark. If you ask me, the stars are winning. Gamar chatima